Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1. Looking this evening at verses 24 through 27. I'm sure on the way in this evening you thought, like I did, that it's time for the deacons to prioritize the office building first for a drier entry. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer and ask for His blessing. Oh, great God, we bless You and praise You that we can come into Your very presence, not as slaves afraid of a vengeful master, not as those condemned and worthy of of condemnation from an angry judge, but those who are in union with your Son, Jesus Christ, who have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Him, and so as, as loved as Jesus Christ, and as, as worthy to come into your presence as Jesus Christ, only by grace. We thank you that we can come into your presence, and as we do so now, asking for your blessing upon the reading and proclamation of your holy word. Please help now this poor servant to be the ambassador of Jesus Christ. Please fill me with your word and spirit that we all may be filled with your word and spirit, that Jesus Christ would be all in all in this place. May he be glorified here now, we ask in his precious name. Amen. Please stand as we read God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. My unwritten rule for the book of Colossians is not to preach more than four verses at a time because there is so much in this little epistle. You may remember last time, Well, first time for everything. Okay. You might remember last time, as we looked at Colossians chapter 1, we looked only at verse 24, taking out that verse from this paragraph to focus on what we looked at as union with Christ in suffering. We focused on the the in-my-flesh aspect of what Paul focuses on in verse 24, how we saw there just briefly by way of reminder that the Apostle Paul is emphasizing, yes, in his unique apostolic sufferings as a servant of Christ and a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ in his, in his missionary journeys, 
but also as representative of all of God's people. That, and this is the point that we saw last time, that union with Christ radically transforms the experience of suffering in this present age. Paul makes that enigmatic, perhaps, but glorious statement in verse 24 that suffering, his suffering, is associated with Christ's suffering and vice versa. Oh, thank you. If you get a phone call, I'll let you know. <laughs> that is the, the aspect in verse 24 of, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So briefly, by way of reminder from last time, we saw that the past historical sufferings of Jesus Christ in his humiliation are mysteriously joined together with the sufferings of his church, those who trust in him in this age, as those are all prerequisite for entering into glory in the age to come. So Christ identifies with us in our suffering, and he makes us like himself in our suffering, preparing us for his blessed appearance at the end of history in and through our suffering. So as we turn to look to the rest of this paragraph, verses 24 through 27, we'll focus moving from what we could say, what we saw last time, moving from the personal focus of Paul to the interpersonal focus of Paul from the existential focus of his sufferings to the ecclesiological focus of his sufferings. So we'll we'll pick up there in verse 24, focusing on how his sufferings are for the sake of Christ's body, that is, the church. So the first point we'll consider this evening, comprising verses 24 and 25, we we could call the suffering as God's steward. Suffering as God's steward. Paul is talking about, in line with what we saw last time, how his filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, how his conformity to Christ in suffering, that radically different experience of suffering for the believer that makes us like Christ in our suffering, that prepares us for the return of Christ. That's what our suffering does most of all, prepares us for Christ's return. Our suffering also, as Paul speaks here as as the apostle of Christ, it has benefit for the church. Now here specifically, Paul is focusing on, on himself uniquely as an apostle, as an ambassador of the risen Christ. The reason that Paul is suffering, the reason that Paul is going through afflictions is for the sake of Christ's body, that is the church. He's not in prison in Rome for political upheaval, for any civil disturbance or unrest. He is imprisoned. He is bearing the chains of Christ because he is an ambassador of Christ, seeking to proclaim the gospel of Christ so that men, women, boys, and girls could find salvation in him and in him alone. That is a reason why Paul can rejoice in his sufferings, verse 24, because he is privileged to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, notice as Paul moves in from verse 24 through to 25, he speaks of himself there in verse 25 as a minister of this, God, of, of this church, of the church of Jesus Christ, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That word that Paul uses there in verse 25 to call himself a minister can also be translated a deacon. 
Not that Paul is calling himself a, a deacon in the official ordained sense, like we read about in 1 Timothy 3, but I think that Paul uses this word of himself, also of, of Epaphras earlier in chapter 1, to show the lowliness of the servant, of the minister, in comparison to the one whom we serve, the exalted and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Compared to this glorious and risen Savior, you and I who serve Him, we are nothing in comparison. We are unworthy, as John the Baptist said, to untie his sandals. We are unworthy to speak the smallest amount of Jesus Christ, so unworthy are we to be his servants and ambassadors. Paul himself was fully aware of his unworthiness to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when, when Paul talks about how his ministry is connected to the stewardship that he received from God there in verse, verse 25, that word that he uses there, translated stewardship, has to do with household management how he is the, the manager of God's household. He receives the things from the master of the household and executes them according to the wishes of the master. Broadly, in connection with this, we might think of Hebrews chapter 3, when the author of Hebrews talks about the, the one covenant household of God and how Moses, in the, old, in the old covenant, the old administration of God's house, Moses was a servant in that house, and now Jesus Christ has come, and he is the son over the house. Well, in that connection, as we'll see momentarily with the revelation of the mystery that Paul proclaims, Paul is referring to himself as one who has received a stewardship, a job of household management in God's house, not under Moses, a type and shadow of the one who is yet to come, but under the Son Himself. He is a servant of the Son over God's house, bidden to do the, the will of the one who has been risen from the dead and exalted over the house, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Specifically, this is all connected. This is why we don't take much, this is why I don't take much of Colossians at a time. All connected with Paul's sufferings as an apostle, He's doing this for the benefit of the church because if Paul gives up, then in a real sense, Scripture is not fulfilled and the apostles are not taking the Word of God to the people of God. That's why he can rejoice in his sufferings because he's being used by God to fulfill the Scriptures. His work in suffering for the sake of the church, in proclaiming the gospel to the church, it's all because he is a steward as a household manager under the Lord Jesus, trying to be a good steward of God to make known the Word of God. That's how verse 25 ends there. He wants to make the Word of God fully known. Now, the, the way that Paul puts it there, wanting to make the Word of God fully known, the purpose of his execution of his stewardship, that is a legitimate translation that he wants to make God's Word fully known. But the word Paul uses there is to fulfill. He is there to fulfill the Word of God. So, so what does Paul mean when he puts it that way? Well, I think the best commentary on what he's saying here in Colossians 1 is, it, is found in Romans chapter 15. So if you can still see, turn with me to Romans chapter 15.
I can use my phone, Kay. Okay. I can use my phone if you need this. Romans 15. Thank you, ma'am. In connection with Paul's work as an apostle being the fulfillment of God's word, look there with me at verse 17, Romans 15, 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except, that, except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So as commentary on what we saw in Colossians 1, that the purpose of Paul's stewardship in God's house as an apostle to fulfill the word of God, I think is connected organically here to to Romans 15, what we just read. You see there in verse 19, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Especially in quoting that passage at the end of verse 21 from Isaiah 52. Paul sees himself Paul sees himself as one raised up by God to fulfill the plan of God now in the fullness of time, now that Christ has been raised from the dead. And you remember that, that pivotal statement in Acts chapter 1 when the ascended Christ t- tells his apostles to go to where? To Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That movement there being from Jerusalem, Jew, Judea and Samaria, half-Jew, and to the ends of the earth, non-Jew. That book of, the book of Acts tracks for us the progress of the gospel of the kingdom going from the one nation of Israel to the nations, to you and me, to Gentiles who naturally have no share in God's promises, but have been, Romans chapter 11, those wild olive branches grafted into the one olive tree. Paul sees himself as raised up by God to bring to fulfillment all the promises of God in the old covenant to bring the gospel not to the one nation of Israel to keep it there, but to spread out to all the nations. Seen there in that quote from Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see. That's you and me. And those who have never heard will understand. Already can we not appreciate here practically how much we ought to be grateful to our God for raising up the Apostle Paul and the other apostles with him to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Otherwise, it never would have reached us. We would still be in our sin and lost forever. Just by by way of a side note, that quote of Isaiah 52 there at the end of verse 21, that comes right before, you may remember, Isaiah 52 precedes Isaiah 53, which is the statement, that amazing Old Testament statement of how the Lord Jesus would come, would be the one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and would be the one who would bring us peace with God in, in his work on his, on, in, in the death on the cross. So this 
statement here in Isaiah 52, speaking of how the work to follow in Isaiah 53 is for all the nations, Paul sees himself, as he writes to the Colossians and to the Romans here, as the one to be the ambassador that God's promises have been fulfilled. Now that the time of salvation has appeared. We live in the fullness of times. We live in the time when salvation has been accomplished in our Savior Jesus. And now that salvation cannot be restricted to the one nation of Israel any longer. It must go to the nations. And in that sense, Paul's ministry is one of fulfilling God's word. Turning back to Colossians 1, and this moves us to our second point. Secondly, we see the glory of the mystery. The glory of the mystery. So Paul has told us how he is content, he is rejoicing in his sufferings because he is suffering for the sake of the church, proclaiming the gospel that saves the church, the gospel of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He talks about how his stewardship from God is to make the Word of God fully known or to fulfill the Word of God. And he's talking here not primarily about the written Scriptures, the Bible, although that is in in the background in some sense. And that, that is now recorded for us. What he did is recorded for us in the Bible, in the inscripturated Word. But then Paul goes on to define specifically what the Word of God is. What does Paul mean here, not everywhere, But here, what does he mean by the Word of God? That's in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Why is Paul in prison? Why is Paul traveling around the the Near Eastern world, proclaiming the death and resurrection of some insignificant Jewish man? Why is Paul content to have scrapped all of his education and prestige as a student of Gamaliel and a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he talks of himself in Philippians chapter 3? Did he lose his mind that he's doing it all for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he calls here the mystery hidden but now revealed? The mystery comes up often in Paul's epistles. It comes up in in Romans chapter 16, comes up in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, comes up later in the book of Colossians. It is a rather prominent feature of Paul's teaching, not a one-off that we could perhaps relatively not pay attention to. Since it happens quite often that Paul mentions the revelation of the mystery, we need to give it some consideration. What the mystery is not, first of all, to highlight what it is. When we think of mystery, the way Paul uses it, He is not speaking primarily of the distinction between creator and creature. That, of course, is assumed everywhere, that God is the the creator, we are the creature, God's understanding is infinite, our understanding is limited and finite. We can only think God's thoughts after him and know the truth by way of God's revelation of it to us. God knows exhaustively as God, you and I know partially as creatures. You come into my studies sometime and you'll see on my wall the quote from Herman Bobbing as he opens his second volume of his Reformed Dogmatics, mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics or of theology. Everything we confess, everything we hold to is mysterious because it comes from the mouth 
of God. Now, while that aspect of mystery is 100% true, we should all believe in it as biblical Christians. That is not specifically what Paul's talking about with mystery, not a cognitive, intellectual thing. Also, what the mystery is not, is not a, a new body of teaching. Obviously, with the, the revelation of the mystery, as Paul's talking about it here and elsewhere, new revelation is given in the, in the, in the writings of the Scriptures, in the God-breathed Scripture. But he's not talking primarily about a thought content or a new body of teaching. Rather, what Paul is talking about when he speaks of the mystery is something historical. An event has taken place. Something that was not has now happened. Look down with me at chapter 2. Go down to chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So, very simply, in a word, the mystery is the Sunday school answer. The mystery is Jesus. That's what he's talking about back in chapter 1, verse 26. Paul wants to make God's word known. He wants to, to, to proclaim that God's word has been brought to fulfillment now in this age. The promises of God have been fulfilled. In other words, the mystery has been revealed. Jesus Christ, the mystery, has now appeared. He who was, who was communicated to the believers in the old covenant through promises and prophecies through types and shadows of the ceremonial law, through the, through the sacrifices of animals, through the Passover lamb, all those things that pointed to the coming of Jesus, all those things that communicated the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, those are all passed away, and now Jesus has come, and he has accomplished redemption fully and finally for all who trust in him. That's the significance of the revelation of the mystery. Christ has come. Christ has accomplished redemption. Christ has brought his kingdom, and he brings in all, all people, from, people from every tribe, tongue, and language who belong to him into that kingdom. Now, can you understand? Can you see why Paul would be excited about, would, would be counted worthy of suffering for the revelation of the mystery? Christ and all of his benefits, that, what, that is what the revelation of the mystery is. Here I think also Paul is giving us, is giving the, the Colossian heretics, the, those false teachers rising up in the church at Colossae, giving them some shade here. Remember how we've talked over the course of our series about the so-called Colossian heresy. It is basically that you can believe in Jesus, but you need to add to Jesus. He's great, he gets you in on the ground floor, but to really go to the top, you need to supply your own things. You need to supply your own resources, maybe practicing a, a lifestyle of withdrawal from the world or of going back to the Old Covenant Jewish ceremonial laws. You need to add these things to Jesus in order to get the highest spiritual experience and access to God. Paul is taking that concept of the mystery 
that the Colossian heretics may have in some way had been promoting in their false way, Paul takes the false notion of mystery, guts it of its content, and fills it with true biblical God-glorifying content. See, in the, in the pagan religions surrounding Paul as he's writing to the Colossians, mystery, my, mysterious rites would have been practiced, and a body of doctrine, thought content would be communicated to a few select, those who were special, those who proved themselves of the masses. So out of, out of the congregation here, maybe just the front rows would get the access to the mysteries if they proved themselves worthy of it. Paul takes that false notion of the mysteries and turns it on its head. He says, Colossian heretics and Colossian believers who are being oppressed by this false teaching, the mystery is not a body of content for a few people. It is a historical event for all nations. The mystery, hey, there we go, the revelation of the mystery, right there. All right. Yeah, let's start over. Colossians chapter 1. Is any of this recorded? We, we can do that, right? What was I saying? So Paul takes the the concept of the mystery, empties it of its false content, and fills it with true biblical God-glorifying content. The mystery, Colossian heretics, is not a new body of teaching for some. It is a historical event for all nations. It's not for those who prove themselves worthy. It's for all who are unworthy in themselves, and they are made worthy by trusting in this mystery who is Jesus Christ. The mystery is not an impersonal body of facts. It is the personal revelation, the personal coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplishes salvation and who applies that salvation to all who trust in him and and who are united to him by faith and as he brings them into his kingdom. The mystery, in a word, is Christ. The mystery is Christ having accomplished redemption, all of his benefits, for all who trust in him. That is the reason Paul is content. Paul is able to rejoice in suffering for the sake of the church to whom he proclaims this mystery. In fact, just turn over to chapter 4 real quick. In verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul is self-conscious. He is aware that he is in prison to proclaim this glorious mystery, the life, death, and resurrection, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the accomplishment of redemption and all that that means for all of God's people. That is reason for him to be content in prison because he is proclaiming the gospel whether free or in chains. So, so far from being a dry academic exercise, this is of the highest practical import for the Apostle Paul. This is something he counts worthy of suffering for, something you and I should also count, um, count worthy being suffering, of suffering for as we proclaim the Lord Jesus in a hostile environment. Notice how Paul talks about the mystery there 
in verse 26. It was hidden for ages and generations, but now it's been revealed to his saints. That is another aspect of the significance of what it means to be a saint in the Lord Jesus. We saw this in our very first sermon on on Colossians, back in chapter 1, verse 2, as Paul addresses the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. A saint is one who is united to Jesus Christ by faith. Here in verse 27, Paul fills that identity out more, knowing that the mystery has been revealed to us. We now have seen the dawning of redemption in the coming of the Lord Jesus. How privileged we are not to have access to God through animal sacrifice, occasionally receiving the occasional word from the Lord, from the prophets, the ups and downs of mostly bad but some good kings in the nation. We have the privilege of knowing the exalted prophet who proclaims a salvation already accomplished, of going to God in union with an exalted priest who has made a sacrifice once and never to be repeated because it is perfect, and a king who reigns not only over all of his enemies, but our enemies as well, and has defeated not just national powers that may have been at work around Israel and Judea, but the powers of the devil, of sin, and of death, the evil spiritual forces still at work. He reigns over them as well. These are things Paul wants us to appreciate here. Now that you and I as saints of God have received the revelation of the mystery, he is wanting us to see and ask ourselves, do I see how privileged I am to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant today? Do you see how privileged you are, believer, to have the mystery revealed to you that Christ has come? Abraham and Moses and David, they knew Christ. The scripture is clear about that. Jesus says in John 8 that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced to see it. But what Abraham and Moses and David enjoyed, they enjoyed from a distance. They enjoyed in types and shadows. They enjoyed in black and white. But you and I enjoy those same things in fullness. You and I enjoy a redemption not yet to be accomplished as they did, but a redemption already accomplished. Nothing left to do. No more ceremonies to be done. No more animal sacrifices to be made. No more blood to be spilt. The blood has been shed and the the debt has been paid in Jesus Christ. And when Paul talks about that mystery being revealed, when he says, but now revealed to his saints, that is a but now of finally, finally this has happened. Finally, we live in the last chapter of history. The ends of the ages have dawned upon us, 1 Corinthians 10. We live in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4. We live in a most privileged era because it is the era of the dawning of redemption. Not in types and shadows, but in fullness. A salvation not yet to be accomplished, but already accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It was hidden for ages and generations. It was hidden to Abraham and Moses and David. They they knew Christ in in those types and shadows of the law, of, of all the administrations of God's covenant prior to Christ's coming. But you and I know 
the revelation of the mystery, we see God face to face in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, not from a distance, but up close and personal. To put a point on that, turn with me in your hymnals to the Confession of Faith in the back, chapter 20. This is page 859. Page 859, at the bottom there, chapter 20, paragraph 1. This is a great summary of how all of God's people, from Old Covenant to New, enjoyed the same gospel blessings. But you and I enjoy them better. You and I enjoy them more because we live on this side of the cross and empty tomb, on this side of the accomplishment of redemption. Look with me there, chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, paragraph 1, rather. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world or age, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. All which were common also to believers under the law, that is, under the Old Covenant. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, and in fuller communications of the Spirit of God, of the free Spirit of God, than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. So do you see something of how we enjoy the same benefits of God's gospel grace and salvation that Abraham did, but we enjoy it better than he did? I think it's Sinclair Ferguson somewhere that says, we don't have a better gospel, we have the gospel better. Not in promise, but in fulfillment. Not in types and shadows, but in the real thing in Christ himself. Again, Paul is pressing home to us, how great is your privilege? To the Colossians who are being told, you need to add to Jesus Christ. You need some more, some more data about him. You need to add ceremony to him to have highest access to God. Paul is saying, No, that mystery that's been revealed, it's Christ. And all that Christ means for his people, a risen and reigning Savior, a self-sufficient Savior to whom nothing can be added, to whom nothing need be added. He is the all-sufficient Savior for all who trust in him. He is even more sufficient, we can even say, in a certain sense, than he was for Abraham and, and all the members of the Old Covenant. He is all-sufficient because he has actually accomplished redemption for us. Do we see how privileged we are, whether the Colossians then or us today, that we have an all-sufficient Savior? Briefly, to verse 27, Paul is turning up the, the heat here on us, saying, not just, do you see how privileged you are? He's also saying, you think what's happened is good? The revelation of the mystery, do you think that's good? The best is yet to come. 
That's nothing compared to what awaits us at the return of Christ. Verse 27, to them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as if the revelation of the mystery wasn't good enough, that Christ has come and has accomplished redemption, Paul turns it up here to say this mystery, which is Christ, it is Christ where? In you. But wait a minute. Back in verse 2 of chapter 1, the saints are in Christ. But here in verse 27, Christ is in us. So which is it? Well, yes, it's union with the Lord Jesus. We are in Him and He is in us by the power of His Spirit. He indwells us as His new temple, as His new dwelling place. The you there in verse 27 is plural. He indwells His blood-bought people, the church. So this Christ, who is not seen in shadowy form as the, as the, prophets, and apost- as the prophets of the Old Covenant would have seen Him, not in, not in types and shadows of, of the animal sacrifices and such, He is in us. We don't see him from a distance. He indwells us. And as if that weren't good enough, Christ in you, believer, Christ in you, church, is what? The hope of glory. Now, hope here is not what we usually, how we usually use that word. I hope my team wins this coming football season. Maybe, maybe not kind of a thing. Hope here, hope in Scripture is the foretaste of the future. So what we have in Jesus Christ, or what we have Christ in us, that is the foretaste of things to come. If newness of life in Christ now weren't amazing enough, newness of life in Him on the inside, wait till you receive resurrection life bodily. If being a citizen of heaven weren't amazing enough, what we have right now, Philippians 3.20, if that weren't amazing enough, Can you imagine what it would be like to occupy the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells? Paul is saying to us, believer, do you see how amazing your privilege is to live on this side of the revelation of the mystery? What Abraham saw from a distance, you have seen up close. More than that is within you as the Lord Jesus indwells his church by the Spirit. Do you see your privilege, believer? Stop trying to add to this all-sufficient Savior, rather draw from him all that you need for life and godliness. More than that, not only do you see your privilege now living on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the full accomplishment of salvation and being brought into God's presence to which we can add nothing, do you also see that the best is yet to come? Christ in you is the hope of glory, the foretaste of better things to come. What we have now invisibly will be ours visibly on that final day. What we have now by faith and secretly will be ours openly and by sight on that last day. It will be openly manifest that we belong to the Lord Jesus and he will vindicate all his oppressed people on that final day, making all wrongs right. Christ in you, believer, Christ in you, church, is the foretaste the hope of glory yet to come. As Walter Marshall says somewhere, sanctification is glory begun. Glorification is sanctification completed. What we have now and what we'll have then 
are not substantially different. It's just more of the same, the most of the same on that last day when we will see Jesus face to face and, and we, will, we will be made like Him, our lowly bodies made like His glorious resurrection body to inhabit that glorious resurrection environment to be with Him in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells to gaze upon His face and glorify and enjoy Him fully forever. It's like Samuel Rutherford puts in one of our hymns. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. May God add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word in this place.